listening to Pints and Politics. It's February 13th, and Pints and Politics is a weekly discussion program, usually of all things political, coming to you through the facilities of Trent Radio, CFFF in Peterborough, Ontario, 92.7 on your FM dial. My name is Bill Templeman. This is our sixth show of the uh, winter-spring season. We'll be on the air every Thursday at 7 until April 16th. At the end of the program, I'll give out our uh, podcast site and social media contact and all that. Now, normally we discuss the weighty political issues of the day, and since New Year's, we've delved into the conservative leadership race, the pipeline blockades across the country, First Nation sovereignty issues, the Ontario teachers' strike, climate emergencies, water fountains in Peterborough, and we have done three programs on BWXT's nuclear fuel pellets, plans for Peterborough, and so on. All grim and important stuff. So we've been highly re- responsible, and we've been tried to impress you with our demeanor, our ponderous demeanor, and our gravitas, but we're in the grip of long winter. This isn't fun. So we've got another month or two of crud and, and slush to endure, so we need a break. And enough of the serious stuff, so tonight we're going to have pure unadulterated phone. We're going to talk about hockey. So joining me tonight in the studio is our veteran hockey panel. We have playwright and math teacher and current uh, hockey player, Tim Etherington. Tim, is that still true? Oh, yeah, yeah. Playing uh, this Saturday down in, down in Parkdale. There we go. We have writer, broadcaster, and loyal Habs fan, Donald Fraser. And uh, we have hockey broadcaster, sports commentator, and host of Mercer and Crew program from 90.5 FM, Jordan Mercier. Welcome, Jordan. And sports journalist and hockey program host on Czechs TV, Katrina Squazen. Thank you all for coming out on a bleak Peterborough night. You, you know that they, uh, the, the Hab started the season with uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, right? Yes, and how is it working out for them? <laughs> okay, well, we'll leave that there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but no, it uh, should be pointed out, too, that Leonard Cohen was a hockey fan. He was a Habs fan. He, he, he was. And, uh, you know, I, I always come back to his music. Now, as advertised, we're going to take a look at the state of the game, how everyone's favorite team is doing, uh, playoff (laughs) prospects, and we're also going to look at the business of hockey, the departure of Don Cherry, abuse and racism hockey, and racism in hockey. This is an eight-hour program. Now, Donald Fraser and I did some research for this program. We went on a Pints and Politics field trip. On February 1st, the two of us took a, new, a, a Pete's game, the Pete's Generals game at our venerable Mem Center. This was my first Pete's game of the season, and I have to say I was really impressed with the level of hockey uh, that night. The Pete's had solid goaltending. I think Jones was in net. Good defense. Uh, they seemed expert at moving the puck out, out of their own end. Very few uh, turnovers. Good forechecking. Very agile transition game. And in the offensive zone, Really precise passing and playmaking. Uh, that night, the Peets won 4-1. to And on their third goal, I think four different Peets touched the puck before the shooter scored on a thread-the-needle cross-ice pass. So it definitely wasn't hacker hockey. So question for the panel is what sort of season have the Peets had? Uh, at one point before Christmas, weren't they number one in the Eastern Conference of the OHL? It looks like they make the playoffs. So where are they going from here? How deep will the Peets go? Well... I would say that this has been the most successful season they've had since 2005-2006. And the only reason I say that is they are equaling benchmarks that were done during that year. That year they go on to the Memorial Cup and they end up losing. That being said, they've somewhat came down a little bit back to earth, if you will, which is interesting because I know that there was this terrible flu bug going through around the Christmas time. To some people it seems like a very convenient excuse, but... 
I know for a fact that there were players who were sick as a dog. So they go out and they make this huge trade. They bring in the top player that was on the trading market in Akil Thomas. And yet, for some reason, the results just have been up and down lately. Had a big win over Ottawa the other night. Huge. Huge. So I'm interested to see, starting tonight against Windsor, what sort of momentum that they're able to recapture. But I think there's plenty of reason to be optimistic for this year's team. No, they're number six in the standings right now. They are. Um, in the East. And the, the flu bug coincided with with a, a bit of a mini slump from uh, from Hunter Jones as well. Uh, he knew he he said that the first week the first week of January was not his game. And I don't know if he was sick or not. I don't know if he was in 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 the in the flu category or not. But he seems to have found his game again. And yeah, so I mean the, the offense is there. We, we've got goaltending. But you know, when it, when it comes to the OHL and it comes to when it comes to playoffs, it, it's it's a, it's a rolling of the dice. And uh, I think we're we're as set up as we have been in a long time. And uh, let's just enjoy that ride. You mentioned the bug going around the team the second half of the season. I talked to assistant coach uh, Werner after a, a tough loss a couple of weeks ago, and he said a couple of days before that they actually had to cancel a practice just because well, yeah. you know players were were fighting through illness and they just didn't have any type of energy. So they just completely can practice that day. And like Jordan said, they have come back to earth a little bit, but I think we also have to keep in mind that Ottawa has just been on an absolute yeah. role here. And even though Ottawa has surged the top of the standings, and I think it's at the point now where first place is out of reach for the Peets, even though that's yeah. where they were heading into the new year, they can very easily lock up third and you we're asking us where, you know, we think this team is going to go as far as the playoffs. I think that expecting them to get past the first round is expected, whether that's a first round matchup against uh, the Colts or, or Mississauga. Those are two teams that they could easily beat. And then if we look forward to the second round, there's a good chance they play Oshawa. And Oshawa would be a tough opponent, but they do right. have a winning record against the Generals. And then if we look forward to the Eastern Conference Finals, potentially, where we would think at this point they might meet. Ottawa. They also have a winning record against Ottawa. So this is a team that wins the games against the the tough opponents, the tough teams, but sometimes loses to opponents that they should beat. I believe in the same week they lost to Kingston, who isn't even in a playoff uh, position right now, but then a couple days later beat Ottawa. So I think that this is the team that has the potential to go the distance, Mm. because if we look at the top teams in the league, they've they've beat all the the tough teams. What NHL team does that remind us of? Don't say a word, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> right. is, is Nick Robertson's goal streak ended? Is he still? Yeah, 14 games 14 going into tonight, which has been incredible. It looks like he'll probably get to 50, so he's at 42. Yeah. He's also the only player in the CHL that's averaging more than a goal per game. He missed some time away with Team USA at the World Juniors and injury early yeah. on in the season. But the fact that he's been able to score 42 goals in 37 games is and super a- impressive. And Akil is, is, is looking great. He's it, That was... He, he meshed perfectly. It was uh, it was a good. He did, and I know he was frustrated having chatted with him that the goals weren't going in for the first bit, but he was still getting two or three assists every game. Yeah. So it was just sort of a different role than what he was playing in Niagara. But uh, to Katrina and the point she made about how well they've done against the Ottawa 67s, there was a stretch where Ottawa had won 27 of 29 games, and their only two losses were against Peterborough. Yeah. So it's really you know it, you're optimistic if you end up getting getting that matchup later on. I, I'd like to add one more stat in here, um, and. and <laughs> And that is the the Pete's are actually undefeated in seven with me in the building. Oh wow! So, uh, All right, I, 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 I'm going to just kind of throw this out to uh, to, to Pete's ownership that uh, you know uh, I, I like it around center ice, uh, but halfway up, usually club side. Um, so uh, yeah, you know, send tickets. I'll I'll, I'll help out.
All right. Now, before we leave the local scene, could we have an update on the development of local rinks? Everyone says Peterborough is a hockey town, but why is it so hard for teams at all ages to get ice time here? Will the Mem Center continue to be the main barn in town, or will that role be taken over by the new rink that's going up near Fleming College? And what will be the impact of the closing of Northcrest Arena? Uh, few files have been mishandled in this town as, as the as the uh, the rinks, uh, and and I'm not I'm not pointing a finger to anyone in particular. Yeah. It's because it be, it's become an intersection of so many different agendas. You know, Northcrest closing really does harm you know hockey participation in the North End. I I love Northcrest by the way, but I have an affection for these old barns. Yeah. But it's a very expensive, inefficient rink to run. Right. And unfortunately, the, there's not enough of a, a footprint there to put in a, a double pad. Now, is it being closed at the end of the season? I, I believe it is. Yep. Uh, so uh, the latest update yeah. was that staff had recommended that it was going to close because it was going to cost about 1.4 million dollars to keep open over the next three years. Now, user groups went and spoke at the budget deliberations and said, hold on a minute, you didn't even give us an opportunity to maybe go and talk to our members about increasing fees to see if we can cover a portion of that. So they deferred the decision. Now, I know because I had Stacey Moore, who's the president of the Peterborough Girls Hockey Association on Mercy and Crew yesterday, Mm -hmm. and she said the user group, despite that, they all came out and thought that it was unreasonable. I think it was going to cost about $1,800 more per team to keep Northcrest open. Just not viable. And they also felt, look, user groups should play an important role in keeping these buildings open. But at the end of the day, it's a city facility. And as Tim pointed out, it's just been really mismanaged. They've been paying money to the city that has supposed to be going towards repairs and stuff. And they don't have a clue where it went. So there's a lot of complaints uh-huh. going on. Uh-huh. Well, and you're running into similar problems with the, with the MEM Center as well, uh, where they're saying, okay, well, let's, let's just, you know, let's fix the floor. Let's fix, fix the ice surface. When, Realistically, there's this looming situation where both those buildings are, are at the at or near the end uh, of their usefulness. Uh, and as much as you as you love an old rink, and I love, I, I used to play hockey in the mornings, and you know your toes would be frozen in those old rinks. And there's a certain nostalgia to it. But if you're hosting a tournament, you're that's not that's not the rink that you're looking at. No, Peterborough needs two new rinks, and this this issue has been confused for a long time. You need a large. Uh, you know, five, six, seven thousand dollar or seven thousand <laughs> dollars. Wouldn't that be lovely? Bargain. Five, six, you know, seat, uh, large auditorium for the, for the Peterborough Peets, for the Peterborough Lakers, for the, uh, National Figure Skating Championship, for maybe going for the World Junior Championship in partnership with Kingston and Oshawa. These things are all possible once we get that. And we have seen how these rinks in Kingston and London have mm-hmm. really helped transform, uh, the downtown when they've been located there. At the same time, we need a multi-purpose pad out yep. by the 115. This is lunacy. Every other community, and I, I'm a coach. <laughs> Everywhere you go, you go to a rink and there's one of these things. They're just, they're very utilitarian. There's nothing beautiful about them. They've got three or four pads, maybe a pool attached. They're by a rink. They're by the Costco's and the Walmarts and the strip mm-hmm. malls. And, and, you know, it's not my lifestyle. That's not where I live, but they generate revenue. They generate tournaments and they really solve the problem overnight. And, and what we've done in this city is we keep confusing these two issues. There are, and I, you know, I recognize there's a lot of money involved in this and it's not something that doesn't come out of thin air. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about what is the ideal arrangement for rinks, we need two rinks. We need a large rink and we need a multi-pad out by Lansdowne somewhere. So what is Fleming? What will that be when it's grown up? Well, I mean, the city wants it to be a twin pad arena and with the possibility of adding a pool later on. Right. The thing that I'm always cautious with, so the decision is going to be made likely that Northcrest closes. I think a couple of storylines here is one – 
We've submitted an application just like 400 other communities around the province have submitted an application for funding. Mm-hmm. It's not guaranteed. We're no. not guaranteed that we close Northcrest and all of a sudden we're going to have this Twin Pat Arena. It still needs to be approved. And we came in over the dollar figure that we were supposed yeah. to at $52 million when it was supposed to be under 50. And, and we already lost the funding for, for the Trent Pads as well. So, I mean, we, we know that. That, yeah, that these are these are not slam dunks. No, they're they're certainly not. So there's that portion of it, and then even if they decide that we do have that application successful, and the MPP lobbies the government, and we get it right, that's still four years away from being operational. So now you got to go four years away, and to the point we were all talking about Northcrest. Unfortunately, it impacts not the super successful rep programs of Peterborough. It is girls hockey. It is the Ice Cats program, and it is the Kawartha Comet special needs hockey. It's the ones that can't afford to have this ice taken away because those numbers will vanish really quickly. Yeah. When, when you've got kids that are, that are going to class, uh, you know, first thing in the morning, my wife's a teacher and, and she, she teaches hockey players and, and, and they're leaving the rink at 11, 12 o'clock at night. And, you know, they, it, it takes some of the, the health out of the health and recreation aspects of the sport, <laughs> but it's, it's a problem. At, and, but this is not necessarily a Peterborough problem. Ice, ice time is is an issue in so many communities uh right. but yes we we do have a specialty when it comes to uh to deferring making the important decisions on getting shovels in the ground around rinks i should say ice time actually isn't as big an issue in other communities uh you go down to the durham region you go down to parts of southwestern ontario it's because they have built these big barns with four or five pads and they've built one place that can handle all and i'm not saying that solves everything i think it'd be lovely to have a rink in the north end we should the idea of putting a rink at trent was lunacy it wasn't on the bus routes because the, the you know we have these halcyon memories and bill and i said i used to take the bus to montreal west arena your old yeah, stomping yeah, yeah, grounds yeah, yeah. to go play yeah. to hockey for hockey practices right. it's a lovely memory but that's actually not the way that these rinks operate now but, but there are that, minivans driving up and dropping kids yeah. off and going in there and that really you have to you have to build something for actually what the users are looking for tim i just wonder what about the feasibility and i know you've played in these rinks uh in toronto they have there's this network i think there's about 18 of them Outdoor artificial rinks with no roofs. So you're playing outdoors. There's a little change building, but it's artificial ice. So there's ice for three, four months of the year. Why couldn't we put up a few of those in Peterborough and get the common folks actually out there playing shinny? I absolutely agree. And it actually can cover a lot of the community hockey, too. Uh, again, you know, it, there's no second tier to hockey, whether, whether yes, it be, yes. you know, the, the girls hockey or something like that. Everyone who wants to play hockey should be on the same tier. But a lot of hacking around uh, young people hockey can happen on, on these kinds of rinks. You're absolutely right. And they do exist in Toronto. They exist, they yeah. exist all through Montreal. And, and it's quite possible to do that. You know, my daughter's turning 17 next week. So she's grown up now. Right. But we used to go to I, we used to go to the splash pads when she was little. They're an incredibly community thing. We could do the same thing with rinks. You know, right. it's not, for an right. outdoor rink, yeah. all you really need is the piping and the concrete pad. You don't need to do that much more. They're not that expensive. Right. Okay, we're going to move now to a hockey series that uh, I know uh, many of us can't wait for each year, the World Juniors. So what I want to know is, what is it about the World Juniors that makes it such compelling hockey? Is it national pride? Is it the all-in energy of the players? Is it the speed? Is it the big uh, IIHF rink size? Now, true, the the play is not always as skillful as the NHL, (laughs) 
frequently is not as skillful as the NHL, uh, you see a lot more mistakes. But does that add to the spontaneity of the game and excitement? I think the first thing that you touched on, national pride, is a big thing. I think of all of the teams in the tournament, it's no debate, no argument that, you know, this tournament matters the most to Canadians. Whenever the tournament is hosted here in Canada, whether that's, you know, around here, whether that's out west, you know, like the arena is going to be packed for no matter what game it is. And, you know, I think another big draw, too, is you're watching the stars of tomorrow. And I think that, you know, a lot of these players, they play in the dub or the Q or the the OHL. And sometimes those games aren't as accessible for people to watch on TV. So this is the opportunity to watch those players because it is put on the big national stage, every game being on TSN. And, you know, those players that you watch there, there's a chance that, you know, they're going to be drafted in a few months or that they're going to be on the show one day in the NHL. So I think those... Those are the, you know, growing up, those are the two biggest draws for right. me, why I wanted to watch it. Uh, yeah. you, you brought up the quality of hockey, and, and, and I think we got to talk about the quality of hockey uh, at the end of December and the beginning of January. And, and in the NHL, when you're in the dog days, hockey is often not that great. It's more, <laughs> it's, uh, it's more a game of survival than it is uh, a real excitement. It's, it's not until we get into uh, March, April, where you're getting in the playoff races that, that are really heating up that, that that hockey begins to come alive. But what we're looking at is we're looking at a best on best tournament. So the, these are the best players of their, uh, of their ages going head to head. Uh, the quality of hockey, I think, is astounding. And uh, mm-hmm. the other thing that I think we need to look at is that the juniors are pretty much a Canadian phenomena. Uh, if, if mm. you go to European nations, uh, they don't, they, the draw isn't nearly as huge. Uh, it, it's why it keeps on popping back up in North America, you know, every, every two years, every, and, uh, also, it's a holiday. So, uh, what you have is an audience that is, that is for the most part, hanging around, uh, in those days, uh, in between Christmas and, and New Year's when you don't know what day it is, when you don't know what year it is, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of opportunity to sit down and eat chicken wings and, 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 walk, and watch <laughs> hockey. Um, and so even then, you're so amped up by it that by the time you get to the medal rounds when people are back to work, you know, it continues. And, uh, so there's, it's, it's a, it's a perfect storm, really, uh, of capturing people's attentions when they're available with a very good product. I would say that both Katrina and Donald were absolutely correct on all of that. Just touching on your notion that, you know, you see few more mistakes. Yeah. But I think that's good. And that can lead to, you know, yeah. much more in the way of excitement. And the way kids are versus the way professionals are, you see these just dramatic momentum shifts yes. that you just don't see in the NHL. In the NHL, most times, you know, three-goal lead, whatever. Yeah. You can see three-goal leads erased in a period in the World Juniors, and that's one of the reasons yeah. why I think it's so compelling. And, and I, I love when a, when a team blows out the opposition. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a 7-1 game. Uh, and these guys are kids. They're, they're, the maturity level isn't there. And they go riding into the next game at, uh, at this incredible height and they get creamed. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's incredible watching uh, that roller coaster of emotion that these kids are going on. And, right. Uh, it, it's not until right. they're well established in the NHL that they really start to settle down. And, and even those leaders are, start showing that leadership medal where they're, they're, they're calming each other's down. And it, so it, it's, it's a bit of a rodeo and it's a bit of fun that way. And, you know, there, we have to acknowledge there's a bit of an absurdity with sport fandom. You know, really, like the, yeah. the amount of emotions and passions we invest in it for something that, that is a game and really ultimately has very little bearing on the betterment of our lives. That said, I'm a passionate hockey fan. <laughs> and 
you know, where, where I locate that is, is, is it's the narrative, you know, and we organize our lives. We define ourselves by narrative and everyone loves an origin story. Yeah. And that's what the world juniors are to a hockey fan. Right. You know, this sense that you are getting that glimpse or if like, you know, music heads understand this, right? I was in that bar when I first saw that band, right? You know, it's yeah. the first time yeah. we get to see these people. The other thing fits into the narrative is exactly what Katrina said. You know, I, I, I've actually followed every single world junior since they've been doing it. I, I listened to the very first time we sent a national team on radio in my kitchen in Montreal when they all sang Canada afterwards. I've never actually missed Team Canada in the world juniors now in, oh my God, I'm old, 40 years, right? <laughs> 38, 9, whatever it is. Um, but it has its roots in a time yeah. when there was this huge sense of injustice among Canadian hockey fans that we never got an opportunity to put our best players together. Yes. Yeah. We were very upset about the Olympics. We pulled out for a few years. The World Championships, which is a signature event in, 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 in Europe, of course, we can't send our best players there. So the World Juniors was our chance to show that we were the best. Things have changed. It's much more competitive now. Right. Despite everything I just said about the absurdity of hockey, I felt great when Canada won. And I know what, you know, I, I recognize there's a certain hollowness to that. There's a certain absurdity to that. Yeah. But I'm going to embrace it. Yeah. You know, some people get excited about a television show. I see Team Canada win a gold medal, and I have tears in my eyes. <laughs> now, you know, you, you mentioned something interesting, too, in that this is a once-a-year once occasion. And it causes me to reflect. Uh, you and I will start bonding over our Montreal memories here, but... A Habs game used to be an occasion in Montreal. People used to get dressed up, d down in the Reds at least. I mean, women would wear hats and furs. Men would have suit and tie. It used to be an occasion because, the, you know, there's 50 games in a season, 60 games. Now there's 82 games. I mean, some weeks I could watch four Habs games. I mean, it's no longer that special bottle of wine on the shelf I'm saving. It's, it's you know, your everyday plonk. And, you know. <laughs> That was uh, back when you were watching Aurel Joliet play, right? Uh, back <laughs> yeah. He wasn't on TV. How was no, Howie yeah. Morenz in real life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please tell me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Morris Richard, yes. I'll, I'll confess to I saw the rocket play. Okay, now... During the NHL All-Star Weekend, there was a Canadian-American women's hockey game. Now, I'm a regular watcher of TV sports in the, in the winter uh, at the gym, uh, and that was the first women's game I've seen this year. Why aren't we seeing more of the women's game on TV, and how are the women's hockey leagues doing? Why don't we see more of it? You don't see it because it's not on TV, because it's not put on that national stage the same way that the men's game is. And that's a huge problem. And I do commend the NHL for giving the women right. a platform at the NHL All-Star Game because they know that a lot of eyes are going to be on it. Sure. But I just think the biggest problem right now is is visibility is it's yeah, it's just not it's just not accessible. Well, what about access to hockey for girls. I mean, we happen to have in the room here fathers of four, five girls. Yeah, father of girls, father yes. of girls, father of girls, yep. father of two girls. Why can't girls play hockey like boys play hockey like as teenagers as kids in elementary school I, yeah i think it's certainly a lot better now than it's probably ever been i think yeah. if you looked at registration numbers they're probably you know up in the peterborough area yeah. i grew up playing 
hockey. Like I played up until the time I went to university and then went to university and played intramurals. I think that hockey right. is an expensive sport to play, whether True. you are a yeah. male or a female. Yeah. And True. I was True. lucky to have parents that could put me in hockey at a young right. age and and put me in camps and because right. it was something that I enjoyed doing and so they were going to you know foster that but I I don't as far as women actually getting involved in the game and playing the game I think there are a lot of opportunities for that we mentioned the Ice Cats earlier which is a big organization yeah. here but it's it's just that realization as you get older that you know I can't make a living off of this and I think yes. that's what draws a lot of people away from it as they get into their you know your teenage years Right. You're right. And, and that's actually the status of most sports. You know, most people play sports for a passion and can't make money off of it. Um, the United States does amateur sports differently. It's much more oriented around the high schools and the universities, mm-hmm. which in many ways actually has helped fuel women's hockey. Uh, because uh, it has a niche popularity in the States, like a lot of sports do. Uh, but it is rooted in their high school prep school system and in the universities. I mean, I know several young women who have gone off on hockey scholarships to the United States in opportunities that they wouldn't have had here. It gets them an education. They get to play in big crowds through their collegiate years. But you're absolutely right, Katrina. There isn't actually the payoff at the end. Right. And to that, I would subscribe. I mean, we can get very deep about it and talk about you know, inherent sexism perhaps in some of these sports. But but what I said about narrative, hmm. you know, I watch the Canada-U.S. women's hockey games whenever I can because they're incredible hockey. And I actually know I've heard of some of these players and I'm interested in them. Uh, a league game. Uh, the women's league has no interest in me because I'm not really invested in these teams. Mind you, as big a hockey fan as I am, you know, a, a St. Louis Anaheim game on TV late at night, like I'll flip through it a little bit, but I don't sit and watch it because I'm not invested in the team. As yes. good as the product is on the ice, it doesn't do anything for me, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think the real question here is what responsibility, if any, does the NHL need to have in starting and supporting a right. professional league similar to what the NBA did with the WNBA? The WNBA. You need to look at it and say it's not going to be a moneymaker, but what you're doing is investing in future fans and customers to your sport. And I think that's where it's sort of you're seeing incremental little steps with their involvement in the all-star skills competition and this this year the three-on-three game. But I think that's kind of where people, a lot of people anyways, are pointing their fingers saying, NHL, okay, billion-dollar business. You need to do more to help make sure that women are able to be able to join professional hockey yeah and 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 i think there's a responsibility to to showcase the sport and you're going to get an audience there you're not going to get an audience that's as big as as the men's game um but there are several generations of young girls and women who grew up around the sport of hockey and who would flock to that if given the opportunity on on a regular basis or 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 greater access to the sport and i know people will say okay well the, the women's game isn't you know it's it's not as tough it's not as fast uh, i i love women's tennis and and i will watch women's tennis well before i will watch the the men's game uh because it's a different sport. Um, there, there's, it, it's not driven on, on serves and pounds, but rather on, on the rally and, and on skill. Uh, the women's game is similar. You know, the, the, the slap shots are not the slap shots that you're getting from a Shea Weber. Uh, but the, the plays that they're making, the finesse that they're doing is, is absolutely fantastic. And they, they, they serve up a different version of the sport. I think if people had more access to it, those numbers would start to grow, but we're not getting a chance. Okay. Now, we must ask the question, let's, let's move to the NHL, and I guess the top of uh, my little batting order here is 
the Babcock termination. What's the impact so far? We'll get the job next year. So after they named Sheldon Keefe as coach, they did sign him to a contract extension. And momentum-wise, they got a little bit of the boom that you see when you fire a coach and then bring in someone who's deemed a little bit more player-friendly. This is not unprecedented in the National Hockey League. Last year, the St. Louis Blues fired their coach. Craig Berube came in, and they won the Stanley Cup. It's not like other sports where you're just because you fire a coach, you're not waving a white flag on a season. We saw it even with the New Jersey Devils in 2000 where they fired Robbie Fatorik. They were a first-place team. Larry Robinson comes in, is the coach, and they end up winning the Stanley Cup. I think they wanted a little bit of that. I think you saw that originally a little bit. Um, Struggling lately. Uh, It's a team that has dealt, of course, the injury of Frederick Anderson and having to go out and search for a backup goaltender and the whole Michael Hutchinson, you know, the 13, 14 games he played. Don't want to remind a lot of Leaf fans about that. So I think right now uh, the... It, it remains to be seen, though, uh, what exactly... I think just Sheldon Keefe, there needed to be a cultural change within Toronto. It was an underachieving squad. It was a squad that the star players had obviously tuned out Mike Babcock. We now know a little bit about what was going on in the relationship. I think we just know the tip of the iceberg, to be perfectly honest. Indeed. So I think this is a refreshing change and one that ultimately will be good for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Okay. And there, and there seemed to be a clash of cultures, you know, that, that you, you, you brought in Kyle Dubas. Sheldon Keefe is his coach. And Dubas has constructed a team in a very specific way. And Sheldon Keefe mm-hmm. has followed him through. And, and so that, that it made sense to link it up. This is now Dubas's team. This is Keefe's team. Seems to be doing a, a pretty decent job. I, what I pointed out, though, is that, and I'm, I'm not a Leafs fan, um, but you have to respect the fact that, you know, they have three forwards on their team. That any single one of them would be the best four on half the teams in the NHL, mm-hmm. you know, and it's oh, an yeah. incredible collection of talent. The big experiment for the Leafs, and I'm sure there's analytics to back up what Dubas is doing. So this is a real litmus test for the analytics people. Is he's gone all in on just a handful of forwards, right. um, and you know, it's he, it's really on the precipice. This isn't the team that should be fighting for a playoff spot because they don't have a plan B. You know, they, right. they, they have a couple people in the system. Robertson's quite good in that, but that's mm-hmm. about it. They have no draft picks. Right. Their first pick next year is around 50th, and the next one after that is 115th. Right. So this is their team. And, you know, from my distance, not as a passionate fan, I'm like, I don't know, is this actually going to work? Like, you're trying, you're trying to ride one goalie and four forwards right. to playoff success. I, I don't see it if, but if it does work, it will cause a great culture change in the NHL. It's, it's Dubas' so. team, but it's also the players' team. Let's let's not get this wrong. I mean, um, Babcock. A good reason why Babcock was gone was because the players tuned them tuned them out. Um, Babcock was trying to to do some system stuff that those players did not want to do. Those those three guys, those four guys, maybe they want an open game. Uh, they they wanted they they want the horses to run. They want to be able to 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 go as hard as they can on offense, which is how, how this team was built. However, everyone outside of Toronto was looking at this building process and, and, the, and the players that they were bringing in and saying, you forgot something, uh, and, 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 and that's D. And, and everyone said, okay, well, you know, that's okay because we have Anderson. Uh, Anderson has had tough playoffs in his, in his past. Yep. Um, if, if you're, if you're going to roll the dice, then 
you know, have a carry price. Um, I don't know that your Andersons are, are going to win you a cup. Uh, and the D's, you saw as soon as, as soon as you lost Riley, who wasn't even having all that great a year, that's, that's when the defense dominoes really started to fall. Uh, and, and when, if you're a Leaf fan and you're saying, oh my goodness, we've locked, we've lost Jake Muzzin, there's something wrong with your team. Okay, Katrina. I don't know about how you guys felt during the Babcock firing, but I remember hearing it on the news and just being absolutely shocked that it happened so quickly during the season. I thought that management was going to give Babcock more time to try and uh, right the ship. But then obviously after everything that uh, came out about, you know, the the culture in the room, the the Marner list, like rank everybody based yeah, on yeah, their, yeah, yeah. their work ethic, it was clear why he had to go. But I just don't think his system was meshing with this extremely young team. I grew up an hour outside of Detroit and I got spoiled during like the <laughs> the Detroit Babcock era where yeah. he got to work with guys like Geiserman and Lidstrom and yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah. think that system worked much better for them than it did with guys like, you know, your Marners, your Matthews, your Nylanders. And I just think Keith is much more open and yeah. um, receptive to, to change. I mean, we see three top forwards like playing on the same line right now and that never would have happened when Babcock was was in charge so I was shocked when it happened but now being a couple months removed it it's understandable why it needed to happen sure Jordan yeah. no I would just you know that was pretty much perfect what Katrina said and I think we've sort of alluded to it sometimes you got to let the wild horses roam and we've yeah. seen a change tactically with Sheldon Keefe who if a player's going well he doesn't mind playing a forward 23 24 minutes with Mike Babcock much of the criticism over last year's game seven was Austin Matthews played 18 minutes yeah. uh, you know only got a handful of shifts in the latter half and people are thinking wow this is the guy that's the face of your franchise and that's because Mike Babcock decided over the course of his career or over the course of the season and I'm sure there was input from the analytics department that the maximum return you were going to get from a player like Austin Matthews was going to be if he played between 18 and 19 minutes where if you're someone like Sheldon Keith you say no you got to ride your gut sometimes and you can't be as convinced that was the one thing about Babcock and what made him great also made him not so great which is mm. he was so in love with his systems and his ideas right. and would never roll the dice and I saw that as a Red Wing fan actually you saw that a little bit through times where there was one game seven where Patrick Eves had played as much as Pavel Datsuk yeah. about halfway through the third period. <laughs> Can you explain it? I yeah, can't. Yeah, you know, yeah, one's yeah. a top five player in the world. The other's sort of a dirty mid third liner. And yet Mike Babcock was convinced that was the best way to coach his team. So right. I think ultimately the Leafs are better off for this. Well, he's yeah. also a guy that's based his, – his style of coaching is relationship-based. And, and and you see that when, when you've got something like uh, – Beginning of the season, and, and Jason Spezza arrives back in town in, in Toronto and and gets sat for the opening game. That's that. Th those are relationship issues. Uh, the yeah. flip side of that is, yeah. so Babcock gets run out of town, and Tavares is saying, "Yeah, I talked to him afterwards. You know, he he was really good for my career. He blah blah blah." And it's like, well, that's because he liked you, dude. And and so there 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 is a relationship based to Babcock's coaching that has worked in the past, but was not working in Toronto. Okay, speaking of terminations, now that the dust has settled somewhat, what has been the impact of Don Cherry's firing from Coach's Corner? Now, true confession, I have listened to a few of his podcasts lately, and the conversations are generally low-key, non-political, 
and quite entertaining. Uh, more true confessions. I'm probably one of the left-wing kooks that he invade against. Uh, oh, that would be Pinko, Bill. Yeah, yeah, that would be Pinko. Yeah. <laughs> his now, now, now kooks and Pinkos. He kind of went back. Yeah, and forth. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now, his uh, the, the format uh, of the podcast. They're worth checking out. Is his son on Don Cherry's son lobs softball questions, and Don responds with lots of stories about the old days in the NHL. Now, Don Cherry does old-timer stories very well. He's 85. He's been there. He can talk about Quackenbush and, and Phil Lake, uh, Laco and all these legends. Uh, so do we miss him, or has his time on the podium come to a justified end? Well, yes. <laughs> and, 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 and not here to, to dance on the grave of his career. As you say, he's 85. You know, yeah. and, and the platform he had in Coach's Corner, I know there's a niche of the audience that bl- loved him, and that's always going to be the case. It's interesting you say about the podcast. I haven't listened to it because I think one of the remarkable things about the demise of Don Cherry is how quickly he's faded from the public imagination, which I think betrays the fact that that huge platform he had was really what propped up his his uh, his impact on, on, on the Canadian culture. At the same time, he, he, he does a thing, uh, maybe not anymore, but on the radio. I think it was a Coach's Corner radio segment. It's sometimes here in the car driving. Great plan. Thank you. Yeah. And those are really entertaining for that exact reason. Yeah. An old veteran person reminiscing. He's got charm. He's got humor. I mean, I know this is a bit of reduction, but he is. He's that uncle who you, you, you like at family reunions, you like talking to, but he says a few things that make you wince, and you're not going to invite him over to meet your, 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 uh, your, your girlfriend's parents. You know? Like, yeah. you're not going to do that, right? But <laughs> but he's kind of a guilty pleasure every once in a while. He's like, he tells you stories pleasure. about the old days. It's, oh, it's great. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe he said that. Uh, so I, I, I'm very happy he's not – he doesn't have the platform coach score. Not everyone agrees with me. I think it was – it distracted from the game. He became bigger than the show. I don't think he had a lot of insights in how the game no. is played now. I don't think he really contributed all that much. It was about Don Cherry. And I, I think it was time for him to retire. Uh, I, I'm not even going to go on the political side. Uh, there's, there's not – Oh, go ahead, ro- Donald. There's go no, ahead. there's not a whole lot of road to go down there. I mean, what what happened what happened, and it was really representative of how he acted on television for years. Um, the uh, discrimination and the prejudice against Europeans, against French people, against women, against anyways, not going down that road. What I do want to say is that when it comes to if you're watching the best league in the game, then you want to watch the best analysis of the game humanly possible. Don Cherry still preaches dump and chase hockey. Um, he preaches a physical brand of hockey that is not working with the skill sets of today's not just superstars, but your third and fourth line guys have a skill set is that is well outside the understanding uh, of Don Cherry. Uh, it's a skill game. Cherry doesn't get that. And and if you don't understand, you know the 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 trends in in the style of play of of the sport that you're that you're giving analysis on. You probably shouldn't have that job. So take away the politics and ask: Was he the was he the best analyst for for the game? And and I gotta say, maybe twenty thirty years ago, but not in two thousand and twenty. Can I be the one guy to say I yes, miss Don yes. Cherry? Oh, all right. all Let's right. talk hockey fights. I miss Don Cherry all right. for everything that Tim just pointed out. Yes, yes. The fact that he has been best case scenario subpar as an analyst for probably 10 or 15 years like and i think that would be generous yeah 
That being said, I found him more entertaining almost as he got older because it was, oh, my God, <laughs> what is he going to say? Yeah, yeah. How is he going to chirp Ron McLean? And, look, Hockey Night in Canada was an entertainment entity. And as much as we all wanted to make it about the great matchups uh, for, you know, on the ice, that was part of it. But also, like, I have to be honest, I used to stop and go watch the first period intermission. I don't do that anymore. If it's on, yeah. I watch it. I'm not one of these people who turns it off because Don Cherry's not there. But yeah. Coach's Corner was something that if I was in a bar, even that, they would keep the sound up. Yes. I don't yes. know what the next presentation of what they want to do is. I think that people have thrown around names of people who should be involved in Brian Burke. Well, and all Je- this. Jeremy Roenick just got... And Jeremy Roenick. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Jeremy Roenick. A loudmouth American, American coming yes, to Hockey yes. Night in Canada who writes itself. Yeah. So for all those reasons, I do miss Don Cherry. Now, I had the opportunity on my radio show. I mean, this was all we talked about for probably an entire week. So I did 15 minutes of... Right. Even... At the end, conspiracy theories of, you know, <laughs> how did it air multiple times and why did they post it online if yeah, they yeah, had yeah, thought yeah. that it was as racist as what most people kind of did. So there was all this sort of conspiracy theory. And the fan base started out with, it was kind of time for Don to go and he was inappropriate. And then it turned up to, what a snake Ron McLean is. And it just kept going. <laughs> and Ron couldn't win with the people who liked Don Cherry because the loyalty part of it. Ron couldn't win really with the anti-Don Cherry people either because he sort of endorsed it and did the thumbs up and didn't act well in the moment. Yes. So of all people, like Ron McLean seems to have lost a lot of it. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they vault David Amber into what Ron McLean does at the end of his current contract. But... The one thing that I learned researching was follow the money. This was a contract and a character that was not bred by Rogers Sportsnet. It was a CBC right. leftover. Yeah. They didn't want him. Just like when they took over the rights, they got rid of Ron McLean. They brought in George Strompolopoulos. That didn't work. People kind of spoke yeah. out about it. The ratings weren't good. Yeah. Now, that being said, they didn't want Don Cherry. Every year it was, is Don coming back, and how much money does he make? And he has sponsors that were specific to Coach's Corner, so it was hard to get rid of him. This was just, wow, perfect reason. Yeah. Forget the grandstanding. Yes. Forget if it was yes. inappropriate. This gives us an absolute reason to get this money off the table. And I totally get it, because Rogers decides what needs to be on Rogers television airwaves. Katrina. I think you're the only person that misses him out of the, <laughs> the <laughs> four of us that just... <laughs> Spoke. Um, Ron, or, uh, Don was a great ambassador for the game. He was a great former coach, but it just got to the point later in his career when he was just too controversial, whether that was saying women did not belong in the locker room, which I took personal offense to, whether it was yeah. talking about European players and then the straw that broke the camel's back, which was the comment about poppies. And I think that the podcast is the perfect platform for yeah. him. I don't think that hockey night was the platform later in his career that he should have been on to get his point across because with his podcast like you said his son just um gives him lob ball questions he can say what he wants he doesn't have to be accountable to anybody and i think that is yeah. what he needs and i think that that is a better fit than hockey night is he, he's, a, he's an interesting social media bellwether because when 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 cherry was on his way out if, if you were to go on to onto the twitters you would have seen the i'm never watching hockey night in canada again the radio Things are going to crash. You just wait and see. And well, the ratings went up. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, so take take some of those voices with a grain of salt. Now, I I, I miss you, Don. Yeah, come right. back, baby. You're All always right. welcome here. All right, from, from, from Jordan Mercier, ninety point five. Don, call him up. I approve uh, this message. Okay. Now, Cherry's departure 
and perhaps Babcock's firing, we've been talking about both these, seem to cause an increase in the amount, at least the amount of reporting on abusive hockey coaches and indeed uh, another ugly side of the game, the, the racism. What do we make of this upsurge in reporting about hockey's darker side? Have all the shoes dropped or is there more to come? And how will it be cleaned up? I, I don't think it's about as much of a, I mean, although it's there, it's certainly a, a Me Too kind of mm-hmm. reckoning. That is there. And that's there in any in, in any male Now, now what are you speaking of? The, the abuse or the racism or both? Or? I, well, when I say Me Too, I just mean in terms of like, I say, okay, let's root this stuff out, right? right. I, but I think, at least for me, what it did was was an even larger thing, was a real examination of the very automatic way we connect hockey with Canada and Canadian culture. And that is something I've spent my whole life just in a very simplistic way, just connecting. I've bodied it, I've lived it. But it really made us think. A couple things occurred to me over these over those months. My ex-wife hated hockey. Absolutely, absolutely hated yeah. hockey, right? And, uh, you know, I played and she tolerated it and that, you know, but it was something, but it was very visceral how much she hated it. And I never quite understood it. Mm-hmm. As I got older and I started realizing, you know, she grew up in a small town. Yeah. And the reason she hated hockey were because of hockey players. <laughs> and, and I'm serious about what that yeah. male macho yes. culture represented yes. in a small town high school. And, you know, growing up in nice neighborhoods and big cities, maybe I wasn't as exposed to that. I know that yeah. I've spent my whole life playing hockey since I was 18 or 19, since I can choose where I want to play, avoiding that very sexist, very macho, at times very racist and homophobic culture. And now I think that exists in, in a lot of male-dominated sports, but I think it's been kind of healthy to look at hockey and say, because I will defend hockey till the day I die, mm-hmm. but to take the step back and recognize that it has created a space for people to be really horrible towards other people and get a pass because they're hockey stars. Uh, can we talk about privilege for a second? So we, we talked about the All-Star game before, and, and I don't have the, the stat in, in front of me, um, but the... More than half of the North Americans playing in that game went to private schools. Um, yes. And, and they were not, you know, inexpensive private schools. There is a lot of money that, that funnels through the sport. Yes, there are great programs out there to get kids who don't have those deep pockets onto the ice. But there's a tradition of, of privilege when it comes to this sport. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's becoming even more exaggerated as the price of the sport continues to increase. Yes. And, uh, and then there's, there's also the soft, the soft economics as well. Having parents who are able to not be at work, who are able to travel. There, there there's a lot of money that happens here. And, and when you, when you have privilege, when you have economic privilege, a, a big spinoff on that is, is often the racism and, and the sexism that, that comes along with it. Uh, if you're an indigenous person coming from the north, talk to Jordan Tutu about what it felt like to, yeah. to, to come and play hockey in the south, as he called it. Talk to the Subans. Um, you know, the, these, the, they, they have their stories and, and, you know, the Me Too point is, is a really, really strong one because as people who love the sport, um, and, and, and Tim, you know, you and I are, are very similar politically. We, we're, we're far to the left. So this is a strange dichotomy here that there has to be a gut check here and go, wait a second. How complicit have I been in my involvement in hockey with the alienation of others? Uh, how much have I, have I brought, um, 
people of other backgrounds into the sport and made them welcome. There, there, there are some problems here with with the sport and how it exists, and and we've got to take a good, deep, hard look at it. Katrina. I think one of the big reasons why you're hearing more about it now and why these stories are coming out is social media and yes. players realizing the power that it has. I mean, we look at the Akeem Ali, um, Ali uh, tweet that came out at the end of last year yeah. and Bill Peters doesn't have a job anymore. Yes. So I think it might be the players realizing that, you know, I can, you know, I don't have to go to the higher powers, I don't have to report it. You know, I, I now have this other platform to yes. get my message out there because if I do report it, then there's a chance that nothing will come of it. So I think that social media has been a huge factor as to why more stories are coming out now. All right. Now, I, I must move on to a personally agonizing subject. The Habs. No Gloria were playing exciting hockey in the fall, and they were winning games. At one point, they were second in their division. They're still playing entertaining hockey, but they're losing far more games. Their playoff chances are, shall we say, very, very slim. So what went wrong this season? And what's the fix? <laughs> now, now the the microphone is being passed. <laughs> I want to hear what Jordan has to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, get a Red Wing fan. Yeah. Um, well, there's no fix this season. You know, and, and um, they're not going to make the playoffs. And you and I were talking about this before. Yeah. And it, again, we get involved in these things. We get passionate about it. And, and and you know, they got that last winning streak. I was like, okay, I know it's not going to. It's like buying a lottery ticket, right? I know it's not going to happen, but I'm going to allow myself to pretend yes, it's going yes, to yes, happen yes, yes, yes. just because it makes me feel good and it's nice distraction from your day to day drudgery. Uh, but with Weber's injury, that 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 yeah. certainly sealed it. Where are they? They're, the strange thing is they're actually in better shape than they've been in a decade. Yeah. Uh, the core of their team is under 24 years old. They have one of the best prospect pools in the NHL. They've just been coming, turning up gems in the draft for the last few years, which they didn't do for a long time. But they have to be ruthless at this moment. They have to trade some of their assets for younger people. Uh, you look at the trade that happened, was it two nights ago, I believe? Uh, the Minnesota and... Um, oh, Gal- Galchenyuk. And, yes. Yeah. Jason Zucker who's yep. having a good season, but not a great season, a right. contract for a couple of years, fetched Galchenyuk, you know, still a useful player, yeah. but first-round pick, and Kalen Addison. So we just talked about World Juniors. You know, He was one of the key players on Team Canada. This guy has top is, is, is uh, mm-hmm. projected to be a top-four defenseman. They got that for Jason Zucker. What could the Habs get for Thomas Tatar? You know, right. if that if that is now the mark, and mm-hmm. you're talking about people like Petrie and Tatar, who have one more year in their contract, yeah. what Montreal needs to do now is be ruthless. You know, is is trade away a couple of these players. It's going to hurt them in the short term. But they could, re- again, if Zucker's getting a first-round pick in Kalen Addison, they could really bring in the hall with their players. Now, Bergevin is on the eighth year of a five-year rebuilding program. I, I think it's, I mean, I, I, I've i always thought that Bergevin gets a little bit, I mean, it's, Hab fans love, you know, destroying yeah. everyone around them. I think Bergevin's <laughs> done an adequate job. I think he had yeah. some weak years. I think he's actually made a bunch of great The trades. last couple of years, he's, 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 he's done well. Decisions. But to go back to what you were saying about a change in culture with the Leafs, I, I, I think it's time to put someone in there who does, who's not invested in the past choices, who, who doesn't have a, those personal relations and say, okay, I'm keeping these people. Just like Bergevin came in, he cleared out the contracts of Gomez and 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 um, and Gianta and that because yeah. because he could because because right. it was he was a new guy and come in and clean clean the slate. So. Um, I, I think I think they need some some 
bigger offensive weapons. I think that when you take a look at the team as it's built right now, it's 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 a great team in that there's in the system when when these guys move up, there's going to be depth uh, and there's going to be talent. Uh, there's going to be speed. There's going to be a lot of things. I, I think you need one of those. I hate to say superstar, but you need you need a you need a catalyst stronger than a Gallagher. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so Maybe some bigger some than a Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, bigger than a Gallagher. Yeah. What about Carey Price? Does does it, does it, what do you, what do you do with Carey? Oh, he stays. Yeah. He stays because he's got a huge contract. They couldn't get value in return for him, and he's still Carey Price. Yeah. You know, he's he's not the Carey Price of four years ago. Not everyone has a peak and, and goes yep. down. He's still a very good goalie. Yeah. Uh, he was been on a great run lately, but and you can't trade him, so you, you you keep him. I mean, if someone came along and offered the farm for Carey Price, by the way, the Habs the Habs do have the future, the goal scorer coming up. Yeah, they've got the best young goal scorer in the NCAA right now in Cole Caulfield. Uh, he's he's uh, he's way ahead of all freshman goal scorers in the NCAA. I, he, I don't know if he's going to be the Ovechkin, uh, you know, uh, the Austin Matthews level. This guy looks to be a consistent forty goal scorer in the NHL. So at least they got one of them coming up. It's hard to tell. There, it's, a, it's a smaller sample size of games with the with the American University League. Definitely, what he's doing in Wisconsin right now is is absolutely fantastic. I do have a little bit of a, I don't know, I'm with with Carey Price. So the athletic just came out and, and, you know, they, they do their, their, their player survey and the players said, if it was Stanley Cup final, who do you want in net? It was still Carey Price. I think that there is a market for a big payday taking over that salary if the Habs are willing to do it. And it, it might be one of those things that if you're just brave enough to do it, good things can happen. Now I must interrupt just to warn the panel that as we wind down the last probably three minutes to go, I'm going to ask the question, which is I think you're predict predict the the top four teams. But but that's that's you know who are going to be who's going to be in the conference final. All right, so um, not Montreal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan Mercier. Final four though, the final four in the playoffs. Well, well, no, I, I, two different I, things, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the the final four in the playoffs, okay. the conference finals. Okay, well, we won't go there yet. Uh, I just wanted to split this out quickly. Now, this uh, much of this year, I was watching hockey at the gym as I log workout sessions on the treadmill and so on, which means I'm watching fragments of lots of games to which I have no allegiance. Tim, you spoke about that. I don't have any allegiance to the outcome, which lets me watch from an emotionally neutral perspective. What I'm noticing is that NHL hockey is becoming more and more predictable. If a for- forward is alone on on a rush and is facing more than one defenseman, he'll dump the puck into the corner. Same strategy for a clogged neutral zone. Dump and thump hockey. Some teams seem to have forgotten that power plays are not only an opportunity to practice their puck possession skills, they should also take the odd shot at net. You know, try to score a goal instead of waiting for the cosmically perfect instant to shoot. The goalies, the goalies, the same tactics. Uh, they're, they have, uh, they're using the same, the, the butterfly, the spread eagle, uh, when uh, they get deked out uh, with variable skills. So my question is, is overcoaching taking the spontaneity out of the game? I feel that's a conversation that we probably could have had at many different points in the National Hockey League. I've had the opportunity of chatting with a couple of ex-NHLers, Theo Fleury, Marty McSorley, to name a few, and they've said that overcoaching is a problem. It has removed Uh creativity. However, I feel like we've come back a little bit from that. I'm thinking more, you know, pre-lockout trap New Jersey Devil type hockey when I think that this this is a this this league is built on on skill right now um, look at the things that are happening between the legs uh, over and over and over again I watched the the top plays of the year 
And I have never seen such a ridiculous skill set put on display by third-line players. You know, this is a a league where they're very young and they're hungry and they're doing just ridiculously creative things. The coaching might, you know, the system might put damper on that, but the players are gonzo. Okay, Uh, Katrina, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to agree with you. I think a lot of young players are trying creative things. You mentioned like the Matthew Kachuk through the legs. We've seen Austin Matthews try the lacrosse move behind the net about three or four times. Hasn't worked out yet, but I think younger players are trying to be more more creative. Good to know. All right, now I'm just going to segue to almost a year ago. These are our predictions from a year ago. Let's see what they sound like in the conference finals. We will go out on your predictions. All right, the four top teams. Four top teams will be Tampa Bay. Yes. It will be, it'll be someone from the Metropolitan. So I'm going to say the Islanders because they got the mojo behind them. And, uh. Ouch. Ouch. Oh, I know you had the rub, but I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> and, in, it, uh, nope, the Islanders are going to beat them. I'm guessing. And uh, in the West, Calgary, Winnipeg. <laughs> NHL would love that for ratings, wouldn't they? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'm going to go uh, Tampa Bay, Washington. Yeah. And right. then in the other conference, I'm going to go with a couple American teams. I'm going to go Nashville, San Jose. Wow. Ooh. Oh, okay, now we're back in 2020. Uh, what are our predictions? <laughs> uh, Tampa Bay and Washington. Yeah. Okay. Okay, this is 2020. Just, Jordan yeah, Marquette. just going, you know, with the front runners there. In the West, I still like St. Louis. And Canucks? Oh well, uh, no, not the Canucks. Okay, I don't know. Yeah, fine, Vancouver. Throw them in there. Whatever. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure about the West either. So I'll just say Winnipeg and whatever else. Calgary. No. <laughs> but but in the East, just one quick thing about that: with Boston and Washington holding down top spot in their divisions, I don't think. Like, if Tampa Bay wins the first round, they play Washington the following round. Yeah. So I'm going to say Boston and Washington. Any feedback, please let me know. I'm uh, at uh, bill.templeman at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until the 20th, this is Bill Templeman.